From Sydney Opera House, welcome to It's a Long Story, a podcast exploring the stories behind the ideas. I'm your host, Anne Mossop. Hi, my name is Mei Fong, and I always wanted to be a writer. Mei Fong is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who covered China for the Wall Street Journal for many years. Her book, One Child, The Story of China's Most Radical Experiment, details the repercussions of the one-child policy. Originally implemented to curb population growth, the one-child policy resulted in immense suffering and hundreds of thousands of infant deaths. By the time the government announced it was ending the policy in 2015, China had a surplus of 33 million men and population numbers that were dropping drastically. You're the youngest of five daughters born to parents who were waiting for a son. What was that like growing up in a family of five girls? I think the first thing you sense as a sort of an unwanted daughter is the value of sons and your lack of value. I mean, my father was not a farmer. He was an educated man who had gone to college. He was an accountant. And one of the things that we would hear him tell us again and again was, you're a liability you are not an asset, you know, in the language of accountant speak. And so very early on, you know, the start, you somehow count less, you you don't matter as much. And it translated further on when it came to things like college, there was a sense of awareness that uh, my father was only going to spend this much and not more for educating uh, me. And part of the reason for that was because I was a girl. And was that also because you were the youngest of five? Uh, I think so. I think, but you know, of course, obviously the fact that he was a civil servant had so many children, <laughs> it's kind of expensive. So obviously the purses weren't flowing, but all of us, you know, all, all the girls, we were all girls. We weren't, you know, this was just so much you're going to get and no more. I mean, you know, in the Chinese culture, you know, you spend so much for raising a girl, but she's going to marry out. She's going to go to another family. It's like the, the phrase is watering someone else's garden. And was there a sense of solidarity among you as sisters? Were you close growing up? We weren't little women. <laughs> we did fight among we ourselves. We were mean girls, not little women. We, 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 we were somewhat bitchy among ourselves and we told on each other. We I think because we were also competing for parental resources, you know, even though we didn't think about it that way. No. But over time, um, you know, there, there's a realization. And it, here's the thing, right? I think you only really re- appreciate siblings with age because you realize on life's very long journey, these are some of the people who are going to be with you. Were you somebody who, as a child was a writer, a reader? Was that something that was important to you growing up? Yes, I was definitely a reader. You know, as the fifth child, you sort of left to your own devices. Your parents are too busy. Your sisters, my sisters, the closest to me in age was about three years older. They all did their own thing. So the, the world of reading was very important to me because it opened up new avenues. Being as I was little and I was always getting my sister's hand-me-downs, I was always reading my sister's books, which were wildly inappropriate for a little child. <laughs> so I would be reading like Mills and Boons and, and you know, Torrid Temptress love stories. I remember my, my teacher caught me reading under the desk, Gone with the Wind, when I was nine years old. <laughs> a, a formative experience for many of us. <laughs> you, in a way, you had a, a very successful career as a writer when young. One of your first essays resulted in a meeting with Queen Elizabeth because you won an essay prize. Tell us about that experience. That's right. I mean, so this at this point, I'm like 
16 years old. I'm growing up in Kuala Lumpur and nothing exciting had ever happened to me in my life. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know what Kuala Lumpur means in translation? It yeah. means muddy river mouth. <laughs> it's not very picturesque sounding. I mean, you know, my, my family didn't believe in, you know, going very exotic holidays or anything. We didn't have a lot of money. So there was a lot of staying at home. There was a lot, there was no dating. You went to an all girls school, you studied and you, that's it. So books were the only thing. So I had written this essay and I'm sure it was a crashingly bad essay, but it won a prize in the Commonwealth essay competition. And it just so happened that there was a Commonwealth head of government's meeting in Kuala Lumpur. And so the queen was going to be at a reception and he said, oh, let's invite the girl who won an essay prize. And I was so excited. And, and it wasn't so much because I was a big fan of the queen or the monarchy, but it's just, this was the only big thing that ever happened. And not only that, my parents were invited and they were very excited because they definitely are part of the colonial era. This meant something to them. Plus, you suddenly had something to brag about. Your, you know, your fifth daughter is doing something cool. I had a $20 student perm done in honor of the occasion. I mean, this is 1980s, you know, the era of fatal attraction, getting close to loose curly hair. That was very, and I looked like a poodle. This, I looked horrible. I had a big fluffy pink dress made, you know, this huge, enormous sleeves. You know, this was the 1980s. It was era of bad taste to meet the queen. <laughs> well, and, and of course, being something that I'm sure was much photographed, you would have pictures of yourself. I had the poodle hair in the front page of the local newspaper. <laughs> Preserved for posterity. In 1999, you moved to New York City to study at Columbia. What was that experience of moving to the States like? How different was that to your Growing up. I was magic. I had worked for several years before that in Singapore for a small newspaper. And, you know, Singapore doesn't have a tradition of free power of the press or freedom of the press. So that was part of my whole ethos to seek that thing, you know, to, to come to a place where, you know, journalism has its place and it's revered and there has, you know, and, and people respect what you do. And so this was my, you know, sort of bite at the big apple. Um, but I found it hard initially as an immigrant going there, even you know, as a graduate student, I couldn't get a job. People didn't know if I spoke English correctly. Uh, they had told me to write for the college newspaper. <laughs> but it was very electric at the same time, you know, to be at a place where I think, you know, who was it? Tom Wolfe said, you know, this was New York at the time was the London and the Paris and the Rome of the 21st century. The irresistible destination for anyone who wants to be where things are happening. And it's a wonderful stimulating place where, you know, I'm sure in, in, in that setting at Columbia, what were your fellow students like? They were all over the, you know, they, I was doing a master's in international relations. I had friends who were from Mongolia, from the Middle East, people who had worked in the Peace Corps, who had worked in places like Kazakhstan and all. So it was a very huge polyglot of people, probably not very representative necessarily of the city itself, but, you know, of a certain group of people who had done interesting things and been places and that I wanted to be like. In 2003, you started working for the Wall Street Journal and you moved to the to cover China and Hong Kong. So you've had this, you know, in-depth experience of China. Where were you based? Um, I started off in Hong Kong and then after a couple of years, I moved to Beijing. It was really electric because, you know, China is in this 
burst of transformation, as we talk about. You know, the, we, the joke was um, a year in China is like a dog year, seven years worth of things happening. <laughs> you know, you would see things raised, uh, buildings put up, um, you know, a construction of a new subway line in just a matter of months. Everything happened at a huge speed. And for a writer, it's very exciting, right? You, you want things to be happening. You want to be where things are happening. And this felt like a good moment to be there. And you came from Chinese culture, but this was about living completely immersed in it. Yeah, and it was different to me too because, you know, growing up in, you know, Malaysia in the 70s and 80s, China was not where we looked to. We looked to the West. We were encouraged to learn English and aspire to go to Oxford and Cambridge. China is was our poor cousin that that we would, you know, there for the grace of my grandparents migrating would be me, <laughs> cultural revolution, things like that. So this was not the place that we were, you know, seen as, as looking to. It was only, I think, starting from the late 80s, 90s, that China began the whole series of reforms. And then it started getting very excited. And then that was the point where I was sent there and I started looking at my roots in a deeper way. And what did you find out? Well, I had always resisted going back to my, what they call it, it uh, my old village. Chinese are very keen, you know, where's your lao jia? They'll ask you, where's your old village? That's one of the first things they want to do to place you. And I had always resisted that because I'm a girl. And I knew in, you know, my last name is Fong. We have a big clan uh, village down south. But I knew that I didn't count, <laughs> you know, in that whole thing. And I, it had been very clear to me from the start. My grandfather, who, when he left that village and he had all these children, my father was one of 18 sons. And they kept good track of the lineage of all the sons that were born, even the ones who were born overseas. So there's a big book where they date, you know, the, the genealogical charts. But when I went back to my village I, and I told them I am 16 sons' daughter of so-and-so and they knew exactly where I was place. But when I asked them about how many daughters my grandfather had, they were not clear at all. Even cousins, you know, my cousins, they were like, oh, I think he had one daughter, maybe two. Can't remember. Uh, they were all born overseas. They don't count. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So uh, so that was a, definitely an eye opener for me. Confronting that whole, the sense that you'd had growing up in a very forceful way. When did the idea of covering the one child policy and taking that to a book length study of it come from? You know, you talk in the book how you were covering the Sichuan earthquake. Mm -hmm. Tell us why that made you think that this was a really important thing to write about in depth. Well, I mean, even before I went to China, this was one of the things that seized the imagination, right? If you are a reader and you read Orwell and you read Aldous Huxley, you look at China where you're like, wow, you know, this is that on a human scale in real life. But when I moved there in the early 2000s, the one-child policy seemed to have receded into importance. You know, um, it didn't seem to be that big a thing, especially in the cities. People seemed to be fairly happy just having small families. They didn't care. It wasn't that big a deal. But, you know, even then I started seeing as a reporter how this was touching on certain things. Like one of the things I covered for the Wall Street Journal was manufacturing how China is the factory of the world. And one of the reasons for that was cheap labor. But even starting in 2003, I would talk to factory owners and they would tell me, we can't find workers. We have difficulty. And I was like, you're the world's most populous nation. How can this possibly be? And then, you know, I talked to economists and say, why is this happening? And even then, you know, one or two brooches, like maybe it's the one-child policy, birth rates have been falling. But even then, very few people had the sense that China's birth rates were falling so fast and so quickly, fast beyond projections. Most people thought 
this was a short-term economic issue. You know, maybe the workers just didn't have the right knowledge about where the jobs were. They didn't think that it was going to be that big a thing. And, and this was clearly the start of it all. This was the beginning. And then that was just one part of it. But then, you know, these were all small inklings. But the big personal thing for me happened in 2008. I was there in Beijing to cover the Olympics. Big story about China's coming up party, its ascendance into the global economic sphere. Then a couple of months before that, they had a big earthquake, um, major 8.0, over 70,000 people killed. And I had journeyed back with a group of migrant workers from Beijing to their hometowns in Sichuan. So it's about a three-day journey, something about the difference between New York and Chicago, but these are poor people, so they don't fly. You know, they're taking buses and things, and of course, all this was damaged by the earthquake. And what I discovered was uh, many of them went home, and it was a sad journey. Many of them had had their children killed in the earthquake, but more to the point, this area had been a test ground for the one-child policy. So not only did they lose their children in the earthquake, most of them lost their only child. And so... Weeks, just a matter of weeks after the earthquake, you know, people were rushing back to hospitals and trying to have reverse the sterilizations that they'd been forced to have as part of the one-child policy because, you know, this is a part of parcel of the project. After you have your quota of children, in many places, they require you to go and get your tubes tied or a vasectomy. And so for these poor people, they were not racing against time. Many people now looking back on that period of, you know, sort of the second half of the 20th century in China see that the one-child policy is having a, a much bigger impact than people would have thought. You know, you look at things phenomenal like the Cultural Revolution or the Great Leap Forward, mm-hmm. the, the whole thing about the one-child policy having impacts that were not foreseen and reaching reaching very far. Can you just paint a picture for us about the different ways that the one-child policy impacted on the life of people in China? Sure. I mean, one of the reasons why people think, you know, and some people think that the one-child policy is worse than, say, the Cultural Revolution is because of the it's lasted much longer. Cultural Revolution was a period of a decade. Um, one-child policy lasted for well over three decades, 35, 36 years. Um, and in a way, you could argue it's still continuing because there are still, you know, controls on reproduction, which I'll get into in in a second. So what it has done is it has enough time to shape a generation and vastly distort the population. That's the problem. So now um, as a result of the one-child policy combined together with existing cultural factors in China, uh, they have a population that's in a word too old, too male and too few. So too few, they have, you know, falling birth rates and that's a problem keeping the economy growing ahead without workers sustaining. Too old, um, they have a big cohort of aging people. So by 2050, one in four Chinese will be a retiree. And that's not a function of the one-child policy. It's a function of the fact that we're living longer. But the problem is there's not enough working adults to support. So you have like about five working adults in China to support one retiree. When you reach 2050, it's more like one and a half. So, you know, imagine that, you know, one kid has to take care of his parents, his grandparents, no siblings to share all that with in a country where they don't have a great deal of a a social support system, not the way they do in Australia, for example. And then, of course, the other part, which is is too male. A lot of people, China is very sun-loving, as as I'm a representative of that Chinese culture. And so when people were forced to choose and limit the numbers and say you only come down to have one, one kid, then, okay, I choose to have a boy. 30 years later, you have a surplus bachelor population that is bigger than all of Australia. Imagine if all of Australia was just filled with lonely, horny men.
one thing that I want uh, to hear you tell us about a little bit is the way that that policy was enforced, the way it impacted on the lives of ordinary people. And one of the one of the breakthroughs for you in understanding how that happened was when you met a former family planning official named Gao who had gone to the United States mm-hmm. and you heard her story about, you know, being a mid-level official, how what she actually did and what that meant for the people. Tell us a little bit about the kinds of things she told you. So I met Gao and she was living in the West Coast and this was soon after Halloween. So I met this nice lady who was telling me, oh, you know, I was just giving candy to all the kids who came to my house. They're so cute. And then she proceeds to tell me her life story in which she is responsible for urging many people to have abortions, in fact, forcing them. And in some of them late measure trimesters, she said, I was a monster. You know, how the one-child policy worked, as she explained to me and many others as well, was a series of sticks. I mean, this is such an intrusive policy. The only way they could make it work was to make it hurt. How could I make it hurt? One, um, fines, you know, you can be fined anywhere from multiple to two to 10 times your annual income. So that can be very expensive. Two, you could lose your job if you're in a civil service. Uh, three, they can cause property damage. Let's say you're a peasant. You don't have very much money. They can't do anything to you. So what they'll do, they'll raise your, your ground. They'll go in your house. They'll break stuff. They'll take away property, livestock, make it hurt. That was important. Four, uh, and this was the most egregious, although the rarest form, was to take people away for abortions. You know, until and when you gave birth, you were essentially fair game. So if even as late as seven or eight months, if they caught you, they could take you away and force you to have an abortion and nobody would be punished for it because these birth quotas were seen as so important to maintain, sacrosanct. There are some extraordinary stories in your book about a people to whom that has happened that really convey the human cost of it. But there are also these unintended, the side effects of the one-child policy. So things like the little emperor phenomenon, what happens when almost all children are lonely, uh, only children, or shidu parents, so parents who lose their only child, and what you mentioned, the, the broken branches, the surplus of males with no one to marry. Tell us about those different things, about, you know, this wide perception of, of what only children are like and what that might mean. Yeah, I mean, when the one-child policy started off, you know, people were like, oh, my gosh, these are going to be the most spoiled brats on earth. And, you know, a very common sight that you see in many parks in China would be one cute little toddler surrounded by four or five or six doting adults. You know, the minute he tripped, he or she tripped, they would you know, all run and pick up. But then you see the oldest of the one child, child generation is in their mid-30s already. They are no longer a little emperor. So my big question was, how does it shape you? I mean, other parts of the world, we have single children, right? Only children's families. But that sort of effect is mitigated by fa- other kinds of families with different sense. This is a nation where 90% of all urban households are only children. So everything is magnified. And then, of course, you take in China's particular circumstances. So I think what it does is it creates... You know, at one point you get coddled, but at one point the wheel turns and this is where we see the wheel turning and those little emperors are becoming little slaves in a sense because this is this huge aging population we're talking about, right? But uh, China has more than a quarter of the world's Parkinson's sufferers. In a question of 20-something years, it's going to be over 60%. Who's going to have to take care of them? Those little emperors, you know, it's not going to be so... This is when too much is given, more is expected. And I think the problem is when you're the only child, you have such terrific focus of expectations. And this manifests itself in things like the examination results system 
and also in dating and marriage. There's this huge anxieties investor on it. And you see that reflected in all sorts of things, right down to the real estate prices. Say, for example, you have a son and only son. So, of course, you want him to get married and have grandchildren and all those things that you, you know, otherwise your mind dies. Two, you know that he's in a country where, you know, unless he's living in a city like Beijing, there's huge shortage of women. What do you do? You buy property. You buy an apartment so that he can be seen as more attractive in the marriage market. What does this do on the effect on the real estate market? It creates artificial, it raises the barrier. So it's much more expensive. So there are economists who have done studies on that. And then also, it's also down to things like employment. You're a major corporation. There are major corporations that will put advertisements and say, we prefer to hire applicants with siblings. We don't want to hire only children. Why? Because um, this job that we have requires a lot of travel. And parents, uh, kids who are only children, their parents will object. So we don't want that. We've discovered, you know, over time that doesn't work. It's down to just little everyday things, how you date, how, what kind of jobs you get. Not just, you know, the horror stories of abortions, but just everyday living. Tell us about, uh, you know, some of those the circumstances for parents who lose their only child. Obviously, one of the things that for, for people outside China, the Sichuan earthquake, these heartbreaking stories and images of parents mourning the death of their child. But there are a whole lot of other consequences as well. The, the kind of social consequences for people who have had a child and lost them. Anyone who might look in from the outside might say, well, you know, you lose a child, it's painful. It doesn't matter if you're only child or one of five or ten. But I think in a Chinese context, one of the big issues that's a loss for you is a financial loss, aside from the emotional issues. China's social support network system isn't really evolved yet. So for many parents, when your only child dies, your pension plan, your Medicare, your Medicaid, your emotional assistance, everything goes along with it. The whole system is still hardwired to recognize families as the major component block, even if it's just single child families. If you are not married, you are not considered an adult. If you are a childless family, you know, they don't have any kind of a recognition of where you are in that. So you fall very far down the totem pole. And now I hear all these um, parents who've lost their only child. They have difficulty getting admitted into nursing homes. They have difficulty buying burial plots because people... And this is because the assumption is that there will be no to pay for their care. Or exactly. So they'll say, well, um, who's going to service the maintenance of the burial plot down the line once you're gone, your family line is gone. So um, that's why it makes it doubly more painful. You've lost, you know, not just your child, but your place in society, your economic reassurance for your old age, all these things. And if we look at that broken branches, the surplus of men who may never be able to marry, again, a whole series of consequences, both social and practical, that China is really starting to face up to now. What do you think are, are potentially going to arise from the fact that there is this surplus of yeah. One of the big questions people asked me was, okay, if there are fewer women, um, don't they have the uh, upper hand? Can't they, you know, command the power? And, you know, I don't think that really is the case because China is still a patriarchal society. So I think what happens in these kind of situations, and we see a lot of perils in some other parts of the world too, is when there's a shortage of women, they become more valuable, but not necessarily more valued. So what I do think is happening is a commodification of women. And we do see a rise in sex trafficking, particularly around the borders countries, Cambodia, North Korea, uh, Vietnam, for example. And and we also see, you know, kidnappings and rise. And also, and also the other thing is uh, there's a strong correlation between uh, crime rates 
and places where they have a big gender imbalance. Basically, any society where there's too many men and not enough women are not usually happy places, you know. You know think of prison populations. So, you know, how it will manifest itself in China is interesting. I mean, one of the things I saw right from the start was when I was visiting all these bachelor villagers where they had no women of marriageable age. What happened was the bride prices shot up. So bride prices had like a reverse dowry. Mm. So that's what the girl's family uh, gets from the groom's family. So that, you know, used to be just, you know, small things, but now it's like a 10 years worth of farm income. You know, marriage becomes so hugely a dollars and cents commodified thing because women have become commodified. One of the side effects of that that you explore in the book a little bit is the idea of this bird, the sex doll industry. You go to visit a factory that makes this. Tell us about that. I mean, I cut my teeth, so to speak, reporting and manufacturing stories, right? And so, you know, for a long time, China was a fascinating place because you'd have all these huge towns just making nothing but brassiers or toenail clippers and, you know, servicing the rest of the world. You know, you'd go to someplace and be like, we make 90% of the world's toenail clippers or ties or whatever it was. And so it's kind of fascinating. It's like Santa's workshop, you know, magnified a thousand times. But because of the labor shortage, because of the rise in land costs and so on, China was at one point sort of falling aside from that already. And I saw it manifest itself in this one company. This company used to make office furniture, but because of rising costs of labor and all these things, they were no longer finding it profitable. So they said, okay, what do we do? What do we make this a high value, high demand? Um, and then they came on the idea of sex dolls. And, and these were like huge exoskeletons, not stuff you can fold it in. These are big things that were shipped up to you in like coffin like crates. And these were customizable. You want A size or DD, triple D. You want real hair. You want blue, blonde, brown eyes, whatever. And it's kind of weird and freaky. And at the same time, I thought it was a little hilarious. You know, there was a part of me that was having a bit of a giggle when I was doing this. And, you know, but at the same time, it, it's kind of hard at the same time because I think this is a window into just a, a way of showing you how women are going to be treated. And that the situation for women in these circumstances is more complex than it looks. Yes, women have benefited from the yes. one child, urban women in particular have benefited from this policy in the sense that they're less likely, they're better nourished, they have a whole lot of no more siblings to compete family with. resources <laughs> put into them, but that these more complex issues about has this actually changed the status of women are not resolved? So, I mean, yeah, I think you nuance it. So, yes, for urban women, it was for the last 20, 30 years, it was a good thing. Definitely not for rural women who got the brunt of all these forced abortions and mm. sex trafficking and all that. But I think looking ahead, what I envision is a kind of a backlash for all the urban educated women too now. Because one of the problems China has is they're running out of people and they are trying to, you know, so they've gone and done a big about face from saying, you know, we'll punish you if you're more children to now you must have more children. We are going to pay you to have more children. This is a discussion that they just announced. Uh, we want you to have more children. And of course, the people they want to have more children are urban educated women, you know, smart women raise smart workers for the future. And so now there's all these big shaming campaigns for women if they want to withhold marriage or withhold childbirth. Um, they're calling them leftovers. And, you know, I sort of see here this sort of a similarity between what happened between uh, in the Betty Friedan era, the sort of a backlash when men came back from the war and they wanted the jobs that women had had in the factories, you know, get back to the kitchen, get back to being a suburban housewife in, in that kind of situation. I think China's economy is slowing. They have population pressures. And I think all these things will combine together to make it hard for feminism in China.
one of the extraordinary things about the one-child policy is in parallel with all of the draconian enforcement of it, how hard it was to enforce, particularly in rural areas, how strong the ties of family are in Chinese culture, how much people want children, particularly sons. And so the terrible things that happened to prevent people from doing effectively what they wanted to do. What you found is that now that whole period of time where this has been in place has succeeded, as it were, that people, so many people, particularly in urban areas, don't want more than one child. So that even when these uh, the one-child policy has been relaxed, there hasn't been this huge rise in the birth rate. And that that's really that's quite extraordinary how that has changed. Well, that that's the next step, right? You know, I don't feel like I've written everything there is to write oh. about it because this next step, which is very fascinating, is the the sort of effects they're going to do to try and turn back. What was once a very drastic policy to go in one direction is again probably it looks like is going to be a very drastic policy to reverse that direction, and you know. Anybody watching this is going to get a bit of whiplash sort of seeing this go on now. And that's the next story to come, I think, as we see in the next 10 to 20 years. And, and you know, the, the whole of modern society now and in places like Europe and all are places where they have falling birth rates. So there's this huge, you know, thing. How do you get women to have more babies once, you know, they're working moms and responsible and going to graduate school and whatnot? Do you have a situation? And this is the part where fiction gets fascinating, like Handmaid's Tale, you know, where um, suddenly, you know, it's a sci-fi tale, but it's at the same time a, a very basic, you know, story about women's wombs. The fascinating thing for a reader is seeing in detail how much the Chinese government is prepared to be right there inside people's lives, whether it is enforcing a one-child policy or potentially in the not very distant future, enforcing a much more pro-natal policy, that they are prepared to be monitoring people's That's reproduction right. so very closely. A couple of months back in a midtown province, the Chinese local Chinese government they sent a circular encouraging their civil servants there to have the second child as an example. And the idea was to, uh, they were supposed to lead by example, and they had a slogan, I think it was, doing it starts with me. <laughs> You know, it's just mind-boggling. <laughs> Let's get to it. <laughs> Let's get busy. <laughs> you think somebody will be coming? There'll be a, there'll be a, there'll be music to it. It'll be a whole Marvin Gaye. Yeah. Let's get it on. <laughs> well, we did have a treasurer, uh, Peter Costello, a couple of years ago, who was encourage, trying to encourage people in Australia to have more children. One for mum, one for dad, one for the country. <laughs> which sounded very old. That sounds really sexy. Yeah, I, I, really I sexy. do it for that. I'm sure. So I, I think that. The Marvin Gay approach might be a little bit more <laughs> fruitful. While you were covering this story, over a period of years, you were on your own difficult journey trying to have children. And it's a very interesting parallel that while you were seeing all of these policy implications, looking at this history, you were also thinking about that in your own life. What impact did that have on how you covered the story and how fascinating it was to you? When I was covering the earthquake and I was making these horrible journeys back with parents and was sort of recording the trauma they had, I discover that I'm pregnant, unexpected. Um, I've been trying for several years. I was about, what, 36, 37, you know, sort of worrying, you know, if this was the moment, should I, how is it going to impact my job? And then I was. And at the same time, I'm writing about these people whose kids died in the most horrific ways. And so I was very torn. 
And then later on, I have a miscarriage and I also very try. And I sort of felt like I could sort of see a little bit of what the pain is like when you lose the hope of a child, even though I didn't carry the child to full term. And then later on, I try and have IVF treatment in China because I'm working there. And I discover all these people who are having, trying to have fertility treatments as a way to get around the one child policy. Because if you have twins or triplets, it counts as one life birth. You don't get all these penalties. And so it was sort of fascinating fascinating world into this. And I'll say that at the time when I was doing this, I wasn't thinking that I was going to write a story. I was just trying to get pregnant. (laughs) But later on, when, you know, after the children were born and after the initial fog of, you know, motherhood, and I was sitting down thinking, I would like to write something and what would it be about and how would I do it? Then I started thinking, do my experiences with childbirth and parenting and all lend something to the book or do they not? And I have to say, I did get a lot of pushback about this, especially, I think, because I'm a Wall Street Journal reporter. I'm trained in the style of the fly on the wall. Your experiences don't matter. And I also think there's a certain gender issue here, too. Somehow writing about women's issues, about miscarriages and things like that, sort of, you know, there's a a few that it's messy, it's hysterical, you won't get taken seriously. You know, how does that do a big country who's the world's second largest economy, Uh, you know, babies and stuff, you know, oh my God, that's in chick lit. So so this, you know, so there's a, a struggle there a little bit to try and figure out how I could pull all these elements and come up with a story that I wanted to write that would be taken seriously, that would have impact, and that would also actually say something. You know, I felt like, okay, what does this have to do with anything? But, I, you know, we're talking about the nature of parenthood and some very powerful methods to sort of change what the conception of parenthood, what the cost of parenting would be. And I felt that these were universal questions that went actually beyond China. And maybe by putting some of my experiences in the book, that it would have some universal appeal that would make more people interested in what was going on in China. The book is obviously contains many things that would be quite controversial in China. What has its reception been in China? Oh, that's another. Well, here's the thing, right? So when I published my book in English, I was given uh, an offer to uh, for the Chinese rights by a major uh, publisher in mainland China. But they wanted the proviso of sort of altering any sensitive content. It's very standard. And I was willing to consider it because I wanted my book to be written Chinese. But I said, let me finish writing the book first. Then we can talk exactly what you want to cut out or not. But that whole period of time, Xi Jinping came into power, censorship tightened up. There was a whole, you know, Xi change, not to make a too big a pun on it. And then I thought, okay, you know, at the back of my mind, I thought, okay, maybe Hong Kong or Taiwan, you know, smaller markets, they'd use a different script, but it's still Chinese, um, you know, so that's something. But then uh, in 2015, there was this weird cases where all these Hong Kong booksellers were kidnapped and um, and, and it made all these strange confessions. Uh, they were taken to the mainland. And what it did was it sent a huge chill through the Hong Kong publishing industry, too. So they don't publish books that are critical of China. I couldn't get a publisher there either. So I thought to myself, if I can't get this book published in Chinese, and it's a book about China, this would be some sort of major defeat in my mind that I couldn't accept. I, you know, done so much reporting. These were many people's stories about people in China. And, you know, this is all going to not be read by Chinese people. So I thought, okay, if I can sort of figure a way to make this work. Um, so I, I commissioned a translation of a book myself. I paid for it myself. 
And then um, late last year, I released it out online as a free book so that anybody can read it. It's in Chinese. And then at the same time, I also put out a virtual tip jar on GoFundMe and sort of said, look, you guys, if you support this kind of a project, if you support the idea of freedom of ideas, freedom of press, like a censorship, throw some money in the jar so that maybe I can make back some cost. And maybe we'll also encourage other people to think about, you know, viable ways to get around censorship because it's very strange world in publishing now, right? We have all these different revolutions. Uh, the old ways are no longer how you can get things done anymore. And what have you had response from people who've read the book? I get a lot of people from China who read the book and tell me that these are lots of things that we don't know about. Especially because, you know, like if a lot of people who read them are urban people. So they don't know a lot of the stuff that comes out in the countryside. And also a lot of this stuff just hasn't been openly discussed. You know, um, you know, the Cultural Revolution hasn't been openly discussed and this one too. And for many people, they are actually intimately living the effects of this, right? You know, so many people are I am the only child. You are, you know, yes, this is how my life experience was like. So, yeah, that, that's been nice to have, you know. And an important thing to make sure, I mean, I think you've, it's an interesting model, an interesting way to do it, to be able to put out your own text and, and make it available to people, the people whose stories it is. Uh, I know, but it's not exactly a very smart business model, is it? I mean, well, you know, give away your stuff for free. <laughs> my, you know, my I had a publishing friend who said, don't do this. Nobody values anything they can get for free. But I, I disagree to them. I think, you know, today's culture, you know, we, so much of what we give is free. Uh, but we have to work extra hard to monetize whatever it is that we put out there in content. That's just the reality of today. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time and conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a Long Story is recorded at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Talks and Ideas program. Our show is hosted by me, Anne Mossop, and is produced and edited by Cara Jensen-McKinnon. Our theme music is by Rishikesh Hirway. We're recorded by Mark Pickles, and our executive producer is Danielle Harvey.